right, we've got to finish up chapter 7. It's been an adventure, no doubt, and uh, that's okay. It's sometimes good to look at things and sometimes be reminded of them, look at things in a fresh way, and things that we have to deal with at some point in time, and so it's just part of it, and they're here for a reason, and so we don't want to shy away from these things. And so today we finish up this chapter. Last week we dealt in particular with uh, being content. In whatever situation we're in, if my sticker again not working, John, you might have to help me out a little bit. It's too bad to get to it, but I'm not sure what's going on. There we go. We saw that when we are converted, we don't have to necessarily make any major changes in our life's calling. We can stay married to whoever we are married to, whether they're uh, even if they're lost. We keep working at the same place. We don't have to move to a new, new location, anything like that. Christianity works in all places, cultures, and people. God has you where he wants you, and so you can serve effectively anywhere, anytime, any condition, uh, low, uh, a base situation, exalted situation. Christianity works in every situation, as we would expect it, since Christianity, at the end of the day, is merely living life as if God intended it to be lived, right? So it should work in every situation. Something would be seriously wrong if it didn't. So we don't have to be healthy. We don't have to be wealthy. We kind of finished with the idea of the health and wealth gospel that would seem to have us believe that God's children uh, should have the best of everything in some way. And of course, that's just completely contrary, not only to the Bible, but to 2,000 years of church history. Christians don't have to have a certain level of lifestyle just because we are God's children. We can be content wherever we are. We, we finish by saying few things are more freeing than to realize that I can uh, I can pick up trash for the rest of my life and be a great witness for the Lord, serve the Lord, raise my family, uh, be involved in the church. It doesn't matter. And in the, if God will make everything right in eternity. And to me, that's just one of the great truths of Scripture. So we come today to Paul's final statements on marriage in this chapter, and he's been telling us that marriage is good, but there are times, exceptions, when it might be better to remain unmarried. And so that certainly, as Jeff was reading through this passage, that he sums these things up, I thought, very clearly, right? Neither is necessarily wrong. Being married or being single, God calls us to to those things, although obviously, by and large, people get married and have children, but it doesn't always work out that way, and there are exceptions, and that's perfectly okay. He has also made it clear that we are to remain in the situation that we find ourselves in, and as we said, that especially uh, deals with marriage. That's one of the points he made there. His overall point is that we can be faithful servants of the Lord no matter what state we find ourselves in. And so certainly then, as we apply it to chapter 7, there's no reason to divorce an unsaved spouse if we all of a sudden get saved and we realize our, our spouse is not saved, that uh, marriage is marriage and you don't leave just because of that. <clears throat> and then in verse 25, though, we start a new section. And we first need to notice that he, as he has done from the start, always tells us who he address, who he's addressing. 
And in this case, he's addressing the ESV has betrothed. I'm not 100% sure that that's the best translation, although it comes into play later on. The word means a virgin. It means a young maiden, for instance, or someone who is not married. And so it's assumed to be a virgin. But it can mean betrothed. But I think this the first part of this doesn't have to only be, obviously, speaking to someone who is engaged, as it were, but to someone who is not married, but considering marriage, or at a marrying age. And in this case, then, he's addressing those who are considering marriage, which would primarily be virgins. He's already talked to others who have lost their spouse, or who are find themselves divorced, how they are to look at all this. But here he's speaking to those who uh, are, are, are still considering marriage for the first time, right? So again, it doesn't have to be betrothed, but later on, uh, ESV will use the word betrothed, and I think at, the, at that point, it can become helpful. And we'll talk about that when we get there. And so in these next few verses, he summarizes why all these things are to be carefully considered by Christians. In verse 26, he says, I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person perhaps to remain unmarried, is what he's saying. In verse 29, he says that we are considered these things because the time is short. In verse 31, because the world is passing away. So why does he use these things as, as the point being that a Christian doesn't just do things because that's the way people do it. You don't even, you don't even get married just because that's the normal way of doing things. Because the, the situation around you, what the ramifications of what's going on are always to be considered before we do anything as Christians. And I think there's, there's kind of a, a general point that we need to be careful of. We don't just do things because everybody does it. Even the right thing, even good things. We do things as, uh, as we put the word of God to bear upon every situation we're in. And so what we see in all three of those statements is that we are to live in light of eternity. Unlike the lost, we have truth and light and realize that getting married or even having a profitable career, uh, being healthy or safe, are not the only things to consider when planning out our lives. Obviously, if, there, if, if just personal safety was all that you have to worry about, and there are a lot of people who are like that. There are a lot of people who... All they care about is being safe. And that's why they give their freedom to government. Because the government told them, we'll keep you safe. But there would be no missionaries to, to any dangerous place. The only thing that mattered was, well, is this safe for me? No, those things are not the only things to consider. Is this something that I can serve the Lord? Do I believe this is the Lord's will for me? Then I do it. And I don't care whether I'm safe, whether I die, whatever. That, that, that's neither here nor there. And, I, and, and keep that in mind as we get into this passage. <clears throat> Basically, we know that we are in an army and we are here to do the Lord's work. And being in an army carries with it the idea of fighting in danger. And again, we know we're not in a physical army as such, no, but we're in a spiritual battle. 
here to do the Lord's work, and rest and reward come later, not now. Nero was already embedded in Paul's day. He's wrapping Christians in animal skins and then throwing them to the wild beasts in arenas. And they didn't consider all that before they professed to be Christians, right? When one considers such actions, though, it might make sense to remain single. That's what Paul is saying here, that under the present distress, you can understand why someone says, you know what, I, right now I think, I, I think I'm going to stay single and not have a family to worry about. Never does Paul say, though, that this is preferred or more spiritual. But as he says in verse 38, in times like this, it can be better. And if you remember when this was read, we'll read it again. So that when then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better in the present distress. I think there is how we are to read that. Historically, Christians have always been getting married and having children, even during times of persecution. And the church remains and is, continues to grow. But you can understand, because usually persecution isn't a long-term thing. It usually uh, comes comes to ebbs and flows, and there might be times where you take those things into consideration, though, during those times. And so in verse 29, the time is short. I don't think he's his point there is that, well, Christ is about to come back, because clearly Christ wasn't about to come back. But it's, it's a term that is used, I think, in Scripture to remind Christians that we are to redeem the time. You're not going to live forever. For all of us, time is short. For me, time is much shorter than it was 50 years ago, right? So uh, I think that's the idea here. We're only given a few short years compared to eternity. And so we cannot live life as if this is all there is, that it will never end, and that we'll never stand before the Lord which is exactly how we see this world and this culture living, as if this is all that matters, right? You wouldn't do half of what you see today if you actually thought you were going to stand before God. And that's, of course, exactly the problem. We will only have so many opportunities in which to make life-changing decisions, and so we should take care when we do. And so in the context of marriage, the phrase here, the present form of this world is passing away, I think makes perfect sense. Marriages don't last beyond death. So living, only considering marriage and whether you get married, whether you're going to have children, as important and good as those things are, they can't be the only thing to consider because when you die, that marriage is over anyway, and what you've done for the Lord is what matters. So, so it's keep a, a Christian doesn't let his emotions uh, and, and and his uh, feelings uh, be, be the deciding factor in all the decisions he makes. Marriages are a tool for Christ, as everything else is. We say a, a phrase that will probably sound very weird in your ears. Family isn't everything. Now, I don't want to downplay the importance of family. Family is right up there as one of the most important things. And, and we see what happens when we don't understand that in our culture, right? But Christ is everything. Everything's about Him. 
And so your family is about Christ. And that, that doesn't apply just to you and how you interact with your family, but your wife and your husband and your children, their relationship with you is secondary to Christ. I think a lot of guys perhaps struggle with that because they think that as far as their wife's concerned, all you need to worry about is me. And I'll worry about everything else. No, your wife has to also worry about serving the Lord and doing what's right. And you're part of that as well. Again, there's fears of authority. There's, there's fears that you have to keep uh, before you at all times. And so marriage and families don't automatically um, invert our priorities. But they do increase our anxiety at certain times, right? That's what he's saying here. He can't be contradicting verse 5 when he, when he says uh, down here in verse 30, um, Yeah, verse 30, and those, okay, no, verse 29, make sure I get here. Yeah. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they have none. Well, you know, if you weren't a Christian reading that, and you would say, well, I'm married, but I don't have to live like I'm married. No, obviously, I was not saying that. Be contradicting everything uh, that uh, the Bible says, but he's saying that uh, we're, we're going to get into really what he's saying. But um, he's not contradicting, as I said, verse five, where uh, he says, "Do not deprive husband, um, do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement of, for a limited time." Uh, Chris, uh, you know, you, once you are married, you're married for life. That, that that never ends. You don't ever live in a situation where I don't have to consider my spouse or my family, right? And I think one place where some guys perhaps have read this and not done a very good job of thinking it through are um, pastors. Because what's the old joke? Preachers' kids are the worst behaved kids in the church. And uh, you can ask Sanders. Sanders, even I give more credit to Sandra, and she that was never going to be true in our house. Never going to happen. You know, kids are not uh, given the ability to, to do like that. But they are so involved in ministry, so involved in serving the Lord, living as if they're not married, and it says they don't have family responsibilities. They, they let their families kind of go, slide, and their kids uh, are, are, are not well behaved. And that's not what he's saying here. He's not giving an excuse. It's as if the, the idea almost is that, is that having a healthy marriage isn't serving the Lord. Being a pastor or a missionary or whatever is so I can let my family go because I'm serving the Lord. And No, if you're married, and this is Paul's point, if you're married, you have a great responsibility to those children and your wife and your spouse and when there is persecution and dire persecution, now all of a sudden you see the problem. Because now I'm I'm not just thinking about my own sake, I'm thinking about my family's sake. That makes it much more difficult, right, to to um, deal with persecution and for the, the possibility you might be martyred or right? something like that. And I think as we read these following statements, this becomes very uh, obvious as we read verse thirty. 
well, verse 29, let those who have wives live as though they had none. So what does that mean? Well, let's read the, the, the other statements that are similar to this. I think you see. And those who mourn as though they are not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they have no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it, for the present world is passing away. The present form of this world is passing away. What does that mean? Well, the truth, which is not very popular, and which is hardly ever mentioned in evangelical churches, is, is, that, is that family and, and marriage, as and, and well as these other things, are not the only thing to consider. That we have we have to live for Christ. And, and when we elevate family to a place where it conflicts with our devotion with the Lord, then we run ourselves into trouble. And we're going to look at a verse here a little bit later where Jesus says the very same thing. And please don't take from anything I'm saying today that family isn't one of our most important and paramount relationships and responsibilities. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm just saying that it is to be considered as part of everything God has put in your life as a way to serve Him. No more, no less. And, and again, I think we'll see this will be apparent as we get into this. Paul wants us to walk the narrow line of keeping marriage and the family in its proper place. We must not look down upon it. We don't want to forbid it. We don't want to forsake marriages, as the ascetics were doing. Neither do we want to elevate marriage and family above its proper place. It is a gift for this, for, of God in this life only. And so it's, that's got to be part of our decision making. And again, we're going to show all this here in just a moment. And so in verse 30, for instance, where it says those who mourn as though they were not mourning. Again, all these sound contradictory, but once you begin to see what Christ is saying or what Paul is saying, I think it all makes perfect sense. We don't live to avoid pain at all costs, as we've already said. When it comes, we do not let it overtake us, but we use it in the service of the Lord. So those who are mourning, those who have reason to mourn, we, as Christians, rejoice without ceasing. We, we aren't overcome by that morning. We still know that that morning was put there for a reason. So we're living as if we're not mourning, even while we're mourning. Both of these things are true. We always have to have our priorities straight. The ascetics that Paul is dealing with here seem to disdain all pleasure as sinful. The hedonists of Corinth see no sin as uh, perverse. Once again, Paul seeks to strike a happy medium. He simply warns them that earthly pleasures fall short of eternal rejoicing. So we are to recognize earthly pleasures as short-lived and not find them the essence of life. But the, but the next life, eternity, is the essence of life. When we do rejoice, let it be in uh, in those things that are worthy of our rejoicing. So when we're in trials, we can still rejoice with the, whether things are going well or not because it's all about the Lord. So as we read through these things, then it starts to make sense. 
those who rejoice as though they were not rejoiced. In other words, something wonderful has happened and we can rejoice in that thing, but we also understand the seriousness of life. We understand the dangers of, of perhaps of that good thing. We understand that we are still here to serve the Lord and we've been called to suffer. So, so nothing gets blown completely out of proportion. We always keep things back uh, under the uh, authority of the Word of God. So Paul applies the shortness of the time to materialism as he goes on here. Um, as those who buy as though they had no goods. What in the world does that mean? Well, think about it. We have to buy stuff, but there's a limit to what we need to buy. But when we buy stuff, we understand that those things are not now mine just to use any way I want to. Uh, I'm here to serve the Lord. So nothing, those things don't have hold of me. I have hold of them. We, we buy, right? In verse, uh, 30, verse 30. But we live as if we don't have anything. As if those things are only tools. Those who buy as though they did not possess. The truth of the matter is that we really don't possess anything in the first place. We have possessions, but we are to live as those who can let those things go at any time. You see how important that is, especially in persecution, where if you say, if you think, well, if I stand up for Christ, I'm going to lose this stuff. I'm going to lose my life. I'm going to lose my possessions, my family. Paul says, no, you live. You, you, all those things are true, but you live as if those things don't, at the end of the day, if they're taken away from me, that's okay, you see. And that can apply to family as well. Now, that takes faith. That takes a, a real love for Christ. That takes a seriousness that I understand what life is about here. And this is what Paul's getting at. The reason all this whole chapter can make any sense to be applied is because I know that my first job is to serve the Lord even if it means a loss of everything else, even my life. <clears throat> so we are in the world and we must deal with the world. Look at verse 31. And those who deal with the world as though they have no dealings with it. Again, just think it through. We, we are in the world. We have to deal with this world obviously and rightly so. We have to interact with the world whether it be making money or uh, being a, a witness for the Lord or whatever. But we aren't to be attached to it or controlled by it. We live in it, as, as one way we say this, is that we are in the world, but we're not of the world. Right? <clears throat> Paul wants us, wants us to think of using the things of this world as a temporary use with an end. The way we use what the world offers to us determines what will be laid up in heaven. See, if we live just for what I can get of this world, we will have nothing in heaven. So Paul says, be careful here. You deal with the world, but you, in one sense, you have no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. And notice here in verses 32 and 35, he says, First of all, I want you to be free from anxieties. And then in verse 35, I say this for your benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order to superior and undivided devotion to the Lord. Paul's not necessarily laying down a command. He's laying down principles. 
But he says, if you will, you know, I'm not trying to, you know, give you some kind of law that you got to keep. I'm trying to show you the principles that will lead to a productive life. <clears throat> it's common sense advice. And, and so his point here is that a married person is not free to serve in the same way that a single person is because you have more worries, you have more responsibilities. We know that in the best of times, family and marriage have their share of anxieties. And he uses this term good order to promote good order in verse 35. I think he means that God intends for us to use sound biblical judgment in our decisions and not just live by our emotions, our desires, and see something we want it. No, we have a certain obligation to serve the Lord here. There are right and wrong ways to live and a right way that requires us to examine all that everything we do in life of Christ, not how much money it makes or how much pleasure it gives. <clears throat> so none of these things can become the essence of life because only Christ can be, right? It's, it's, it's only one or the other, right? You cannot serve God and man, right? God and, uh, God and mammon, that's the idea there. It is one thing to be involved in these things. It is another thing to be engrossed in them. And that includes family, sports, work, anything that consumes us more than Christ. It is possible to be so consumed with your family and just family life. And it's a, it feels a wonderful thing, right? But all of a sudden, your family and, and being with family... And giving your kids things or whatever, uh, giving them a good life, becomes more important than serving the Lord and being in church and, and being under the ministry of God's Word. So you see how it, all these things can become a problem when they consume us more than Christ. Have you ever heard Christians say things like, I live for this or I live for that. I couldn't be happy if I didn't have this or that. And I've heard it. But it's a that's a, that's a good thing for a Christian to say, let alone think. I can't be happy if I don't have this or that. Uh, if you have Christ, you have all you need to be happy. Yeah, there's things in life that make life better. But if you need something other than Christ, you're in, you've got some serious problems. So if you're married, you have every obligation to your family and every reason to enjoy them. But your first priority are the, is the things of Christ. And the wonderful thing about that is that if you are putting Christ first, you will be the best possible husband, father, wife, mother that you can be for your family. If you love Christ, if I love Christ more than anything, and I want others to know Christ and know the forgiveness of sins, what will I do with my family? I will have them under the ministry of God's word, right? There's nothing more important for my children than to be under the ministry of God's word. They might not eat that well. They might not be dressed that well. They might have a kind of embarrassing car to drive around in. That's okay. They are, I want them to know Christ. And when you get that messed up, and I've seen plenty of people do it, every excuse is used to go out and have family time at the exclusion of church, at the exclusion of devotions and all these things, at the exclusion of Christ. And it's not going to work out well. God is very merciful. Lead them to Christ, to have them under the, the ministry of God's word. Make 
Christ your first priority and you will be the best you can be for your family. And I'm always amazed at how some entirely miss this point and pay so dearly for it. Alright, I'll move on. So we know that eternity changes the way we mourn just as it does our actual schedules, right? That's what Paul is saying here. All these, you got to be involved in all these things, but only to a certain point. We can no longer mourn as those who have no hope. We, when we buy things, we buy them as though they're not really ours to keep. Just like when we marry and have children, we know that there's a point in which that will no longer, uh, they'll no longer be ours. Do we have possessions or do they have us? We can't become so preoccupied with things down here that we don't care about eternity. And of course the Lord. So he's saying here, hold these things lightly, not tightly. And it's a, it's a trick of the world that by putting the heavenly, uh, it's, it's, we gotta be careful that we don't listen to the way the world wants us to think as if this is all that really matters. I put in the heavenly first, we actually are doing the best thing that we can do for those who are given to us in this life. And the world can't understand this idea of living for that which comes later. Because if you, if, are, if you have, are suppressing the knowledge of God, you don't want to think about what's coming later. You want to you know, grab all the gusto you can now. You want to enjoy everything to the fullest now, even though eventually you're gonna you're gonna lose all that. And as you get older, you begin to realize that certain pleasures, certain things seem so important when you're young. And as you get older, you begin to see, well, you know what? I'm glad that my life was not all wrapped up in sex. Or material things. And it's not that those things aren't, you know, it's always things you gotta battle, but you begin to realize there are so many more better things and more important things and satisfying things in life than just what you can get for the moment. The world tells us that that's impractical because we're not concentrating on temporal things. We think that the Christianity that does not that puts conditions on the present uh, and, and looks to a deferred reward is an impractical religion. Well, what do you expect by those who ignore that, that judgment is coming? They don't understand why you wouldn't just treat everything that's going on now as the most important thing. But what we see is that Paul doesn't live or think with his emotions and sentiment. And that is, again, it's a difficult thing, but a very important thing. We dealt a little bit of this in Sunday school. You, you gotta be careful that your emotions and your, your senses and all that don't become the thing that, that, uh, determines how you think and the decisions you make. We don't make decisions purely on whether it makes me happy or not. We don't fall in love and we don't get married without first considering how this will help me serve the Lord. And, ooh, there's a lot of people that never did that when they got married. Never thought to do that through at all. They just saw something they liked and boom, they went for it. And it didn't bring Christ into it. Then all of a sudden they wonder why things are not like they should be. That's how people think. And Paul's saying, no, it's not good. Be careful. 
perhaps it's good to remember that whatever the greatest joys are in life, they are they will all pale compared to when we graduated to the heavenly realm. So he's not saying to be stoic about these things. There's nothing that we can't enjoy and have things in this life, but make sure that they are seen as servants and tools. Or we'll be serving them soon enough if, if we don't. When the world sees lives that first live for the things of Christ, instead of us being so preoccupied with the same things they're preoccupied with, then we can make the name of Christ great in, in those around us. Those who rejoice as those who are not rejoicing. We all have the same joys, same pleasures as the rest of humanity, but we're able to put them into perspective. We don't, there's a limit. We understand that. You know, you see some people that get something and it's like they've worked so hard to get that and all of that matters and that's all they care about and they get it and, and then what? Well, that doesn't ever quite, you know, give them what they thought. And a Christian knows that and so we, 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 all those things are tempered. We get a new car, a new job, a new house and it might cause us to rejoice and, and I rejoice with you, right? It's, there's a good thing when the Lord allows that. But we also know that we're going to be giving those things up so it moderates uh, those things in our minds so that they do not become our gods. Alright, so that brings us then to the difficult part of this passage. Difficult, I say, because what I've just talked about is extremely difficult, something we have to work on for our entire lives. But when it comes to understanding what Paul's saying, verses 38 uh, 36 to 38 are uh, a little bit more difficult to understand what he's saying. But we want to keep in mind that he is speaking to those considering getting married and that he has from the beginning speaking to, to men and women, although he might use in, in one case a woman like he does here with the widows later on or to here uh, he's speaking just to the men. It would apply in a general sense to both sexes. It has all through this chapter some good things to remember here. But what he says here, beginning in verse 36, if anyone thinks that he is not behaving himself properly towards his betrothed, and here I think the ESV finally uses the word betrothed in a proper way, he's, he's uh, dealing with uh, someone who is considering whether they're perhaps engaged if someone's come along and said, you know what, you don't, you shouldn't get married. That, that's, you know, you need to remain single so you can just serve the Lord. And, and now, what should I do? And I think that's what's being said here. But we know that uh, some translations have this a little differently. Um, that, that's a verse, Luke fourteen twenty six, by the way, that I think Jesus was saying the same thing that I've been saying. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers, sisters, yet even his own wife cannot be my disciple. You see, he's putting these things in priority, right? In, in the right relationship to life. And uh, I think I was just kind of ignored my notes for a while. Think that, but anyway, um, we're going to notice there, there's two different ways that this passage has been taken, and uh, it, it completely changes, so you've know, you got to kind of make that decision first. The ESV uh, in the, in the newer translations, you see here how it has uh, said it's taken this to, to mean somebody who is con- not married but considering to be married. 
And so it goes on in verse 36. If his passions are strong, so someone's telling him don't get married, but he wants to get married. He, uh, well, for, for, you know, for a number of reasons, his passions are strong. And it has to be. In other words, he's already said, this goes right back to what he said before at the beginning of the chapter. It's better to marry than to burn. So he says, if it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let him marry. It's no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart is under no necessity, but having his desire under control and has determined that in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then he, he who marries his betrothed as well, and he who refrains from marriage will be better. I think the idea then is that if you understand what Paul is saying here, you're thinking, you know what? I think that getting married right now might be a hindrance to me. And I feel like I'm called of the Lord. I can control myself. Then that's fine. And if not, that's the other way. That's fine as well. And I think that's overall what is being said here. Uh, the KJB, uh, you know, the old, some of the older ones have a different take on this. We need to just feel quickly with that. Here's what the KJB says. But if any man thinks that he behaves himself unformally towards his virgin, and some translations supply the word daughter, that's new, new American uh, standard version. Uh, daughter's not in the original, but that's, they're supplying that, and that's what, this, this is obviously what being applied here. A man has a virgin daughter and he's deciding whether she should get married. If she passes the flower of her age and needs so required, let him do what he will. He said, if not, let them marry. So if he wants to let her get married, that's okay. And if not, okay. Nevertheless, he that standeth steadfast in his heart, having no necessity, but hath the power over his own will, and hath so decreed in his heart that he will keep his virgin daughter single, he doeth well as well. So he's vowed to keep her single, but she's 40. She's losing her looks. And she's kind of wondering, what should I do here? And he says, you know what, I think I'm going to, at this point, want you to go ahead and get married. But if you said, no, I've made a vow that you're not going to get married, in some way, and, and I'm going to hold fast to that, no matter what kind of pressures I'm being put on, then Paul's saying, well, that's okay, too. So then, verse 38, he that giveth her in marriage doeth well, but he that giveth her not in marriage doeth better. So you can see a complete, complete change of the uh, passage here. And so, what do we do with that? Well, I've already given you what I, I believe would be the correct um, understanding of that. Let me just read to you um, what my Bible, the notes of my Bible, I thought kind of helped this a little bit. Talking about verse 36 where it says his passions are strong, uh, which is in the KJV translated, if she passes the plow of the youth. Both of those are proper translations. It depends on if you're speaking about the woman or the man. See, so it's a difficult passage, right? So it says this. Um, this translates a difficult word in the Greek and can also mean past one's prime when used in reference to a woman. The ESV translation is preferable, however, because it is consistent with Paul's reasoning back in verses 2 through 3 and 9. And if you go back there and you read those passages, what's his point there? 
because of the temptation of sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife. In other words, the idea of better to marry than to burn, that, that's been one of his points he's made. And the ESV's translation is dealing with it like that, as we have already been through there. So, the word it has to be probably refers to a sense of both moral and physical necessity to get married. Paul's comments are not intended as a dis- disapproval of marriage. And I thought that was helpful to some degree as well. But what are some of the problems that I see in this idea that the husband, that the father, can on his own decide whether his daughter can be married or not? To me, there are huge ramifications with that. First of all, it requires that Paul is all of a sudden addressing the fathers, even though he doesn't actually indicate that, which would be inconsistent with the rest of the chapter. Because he has each time he's got moved to a different subject or different people group, he has said, now concerning these, and he doesn't do that here. So textually, contextually, there's no reason to assume he has changed uh now talking just to fathers. This is also assumed because it was common, obviously, to have arranged marriages at certain times in certain cultures. But that's all, so it's assumed that that would be an okay translation. But that is a long way, an arranged marriage is a long way from the idea that a father takes upon himself the right to determine whether his daughter can be married. Now you've gone way beyond what I think the Bible actually teaches. There's certainly nothing in the New Testament that suggests that fathers could take upon themselves this kind of responsibility where, you know, it's funny, it's always the daughters, it's never the sons. It's like the sons, they're perfectly capable of deciding whether they just need to get married and who they need to marry. But my daughter, she's an imbecile, so I've got to decide whether she gets married or not. And I think there's huge problems when we get this kind of and there are many out there today who have that very idea. I can't imagine taking on the role of deciding whether my daughters would be fulfilled in marriage and perhaps ruin their lives because I have decided whether they should be married or not or who they should be married to. That's a huge responsibility, and I don't think it's one that you can find in Scripture that gives you that right. And And, and by the way, why would you want it? You talk about setting yourself up for bitterness. Because it's easy to go, well, I don't think you should be married. But what if she wants to be married? Well, how do you think that's going to affect the relationship moving forward? Or you tell her, I think you need to marry this person, and that doesn't work out too well. Now what do you do? See, see you know, fathers are not, uh, we, we, are, we are fallible. If you take on this idea that I know best, it doesn't mean that we can't give advice, but uh, the arrogance that can be found in situations like this is astounding. We need to be very careful about that. There's nothing in the New Testament, as I say, that I believe that, that says that the fathers can just take this on. Paul has been addressing men and women as having an equal decision in making these matters all the way through the chapter. Um, I can't see New Covenant living in all this. I, you know, New Covenant is all about each one having responsibility before the Lord and not for the fathers to step in and become the priests of the home and they make all the decisions. 
they have a responsibility and leadership there. And part of this is, uh, and part of my problem with this is, why aren't you raising your daughters to be able to make decisions and to love the Lord and to think through these things? Why is it that you raise your son, that he can go out and do what he wants to do and who cares, but you raise your, your, your daughters to be dependent upon you? Uh, there's a problem here. There's something you've got to think through very carefully. There might be a daughter out there who is so unsure of herself, and I would say if, if that's the case, she would probably raise her. Yeah, but she's so unsure of herself that she says, Daddy, you decide the rest of my life what I should do. But I would like to see it. And then I'd like to find out how well that worked out, because I don't think it worked out very well. So I think, again, there's just some obvious reasons why the ESV... <laughs> translates what this should be. Um, and then again, we get to the, the phrase, if she passed the flower of her age. The problem here is that both are legitimate, as we said, depending on who you're talking to, male or female. Some have rightly pointed out that he is referring back to the betrothed or the virgin when, he, when we have Paul saying that if your daughter is getting to the point of not being able to conceive or losing her looks, then it's okay to change your mind about that. Well, I'm sorry, but I, I can't see Paul in, in the Holy Spirit inspiring that a man who has decided his wife his daughter shouldn't get married and then has second thoughts because she's losing the power of age, uh, the power of beauty. I just, you know, I'm, I'm going to have to say no to that. I, I can't see it, and that doesn't make any sense to me. The idea seems to be if someone's willing to marry the old hag, let her. Let them. But I think this has problems. The father has taken upon himself to not let his daughter get married, and after she has passed the flower of her youth, he has regrets. And so he says, basically, salvage what you can. And and, and I just I don't see how that can be, make any sense. If anything, it would just show to me that a father has no right to interfere here. It doesn't mean that the parents don't have the uh, right to advise and to guide and hopefully have a good relationship with your children, that they ask your advice. But I don't want to be the one to tell my children whether they are whether and all that. I think that's just setting yourself up for failure. So, let me just close it. Well, we get the Bible. I don't know what happened to time, but uh, let me just finish this up real quick. If we take it the way that I, the ESV translates it here, then I think we can make better sense of it, and it also fits in perfectly in the point that Paul has made from the beginning. Instead of going off into some aspect that I don't think you can find anywhere else in Scripture, Paul is it's just we're kind of summing up this whole idea that no matter what situation you're in, Marry or not, there's things to consider before you make that decision. If you are engaged, um, then that's fine. If someone comes along and says, well, to be a good Christian, you shouldn't marry. No, there's other things to consider. Again, it's just what he's been saying all along. I think that makes verse 37 make more sense. Uh, because, again, it, does, it, are we supposed to, does it mean here that a father has to keep his passions under control when it comes to his daughter and I don't want you to get married, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna let you, you know, again, 
when you start to think it through, it's very difficult, I think, to ascertain something that makes a lot of sense. So I'll, I'm going to stick with the way I understand this, and I, and I think that uh, I can defend it. We don't have to make this about some bizarre mandate that a father can play God in his daughter's life. It is good to play a part in your children's decisions, and if you have a good relationship, and they, they want our advice, if we properly raise our daughters, they can think for themselves. Uh, and, 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 and again, I just, the reason I kind of go into all this is because I have seen through the years some families that uh, the man thinks that he's the one who will marry his daughters off, whether they'll get married or not. He's in control of their life. And yet their sons are free to do what they want to do. And I just have a real problem with this uh, way that they deal with it. We don't live under the old covenant. We live under the new covenant. We all stand before the Lord. And so I think that that would lend itself well to how we understand this passage. All right, well, there's a lot of stuff there, and we'll maybe say a few more things next week. But any questions or comments uh, that can be answered quickly and without a whole lot of problems? If not, we'll uh, close. There's probably some of you that I got kinds of problems. questions for that. That's good. We'll do it later. All right. Um,